Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our text this morning is from Malachi. I'll be reading the first five verses. These are the words of God. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your revelation to us of who you are, and of how we can have fellowship with you, and of what you have done and are doing in history. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it this morning. I pray that you would open our ears to hear what you have for us, and then that we would go and do what you have commanded. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Before I dive into our text this morning, I wanted to say thank you to those of you that have over the months been praying for my family and I as I've gone down and preached at the church plant down in Centralia. It's been uh, really a wonderful thing to get to know the people down there, an opportunity for me to preach down there, but it is really good to be home. Uh, One of the deacons greeted me on the way in and said, it's nice to have you here two weeks in a row. Um, It really is nice to be here with you all. We miss you when we're down there, and so it is just wonderful to be back home. I intend over the next, uh, I don't know exactly how long, but the num- a number of times that I have the opportunity to preach here to work through the book of Malachi. So uh, we're going to start this morning with an overview of the book, uh, and then we'll look at the first five verses, the first section here. And then my intention is, as uh, again, as I have opportunity to preach, we'll jump right back into wherever I left off and hopefully give enough context so you know where we are. Malachi... Uh, The name Malachi means my messenger. Uh, The word melech in Hebrew is the same word for angel or messenger. And so uh, the name Malachi means simply my messenger. Malachi is the last prophetic word, or the book of Malachi is the last prophetic word from the Lord to Israel for some 400 years until the time of the Messiah. Uh, In our Bibles, In the English Bibles, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you want to follow along and you don't know where Malachi is, find Matthew and turn back a couple pages and you're in Malachi chapter 1. Malachi uh, was likely a contemporary, the the man Malachi was likely a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were uh, Jews that had returned from the captivity in Babylon and had worked to bring reformation and revival to God's people after they had uh, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem uh, in the, in the uh, 5th and 6th centuries BC. And so this is probably around the time that Malachi was written, sometime in the 5th century BC. The Jews have returned from the Babylonian captivity and they have rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. One other uh, contextual note here is if you look back at um, the previous couple books before Malachi, you have the books of Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, These were prophets that God sent to his people to encourage them particularly to rebuild the temple. 
They've come back from Babylon. The people are living in Jerusalem and God sends prophets to tell them to complete the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So you have Haggai and Zechariah and then Malachi, the very last prophet in the Old Testament. Um, I'd like to spend some time before we dive into the particular section, uh, verses 1 through 5, and give an overview of the book. Um, We'll talk a little bit about the structure and a little bit about some of the themes. Malachi's prophecy can be seen as a chiasm. A chiasm is a structure that's very common in Hebrew writings. And a chiasm basically has a structure of uh, a number of different units that are paired or parallel with other units and the units parallel in a sequence such that they come to a central, a central point. And usually that is done to bring emphasis to that center point. So you'll have a structure of A, B, C, and D, with D being the central point. And then going out from that central point in the second half of the writing, you'll have uh, C prime, B prime, and A prime. And those correspond to the uh, points that have the similar that have the same letters. The way that these are connected are usually thematic or by similar phrases. And so the book of Malachi is structured as, or can be seen as being structured as a chiasm. Right at the center, and if you want to follow along, I've, I have this in your notes, um, and so you can follow along, or just keep your Bible open and, and look at the text with me. At the center of this chiasm, uh, we have chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And in this uh, central passage, Malachi calls Judah to repentance for their treacherous dealings with one another and with God's covenant. So verse, chapter 2, verses 10 through chapter 2, verse 16. And one of the main themes, actually, if um, uh, it's possible to see that center section itself as a chiasm. So there's chiasms within chiasms in Malachi, and it gets a little crazy sometimes. But at the center, I think one of the central points um, that we have in this section is in verse 15. Uh, just this phrase particularly, he seeks godly offspring. And if you read through the book of Malachi, you'll see actually there is a real emphasis and a real uh, prominent theme of God's fatherhood and his desire for his offspring, for his people throughout the whole book of Malachi. And I think this central phrase kind of uh, um, highlights that, that God seeks godly offspring. Moving out from that central point, we have um, a a section in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, where God addresses the sins and corruption of the priesthood. Uh, It's in chapter 2, verse 1, that God actually gives a direct address to particular people in Israel, and he highlights the priests. He gives an accusation against the priests, or in verse 1, it says, a commandment to you, O priests. Um, And in that section, God describes how uh, he had established his covenant with Levi. The Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel. He had established his covenant with Levi and instructed them to then instruct the rest of the people of Israel in how to follow the Lord. But God says that the Levites have themselves become corrupt, and because of that, they have led the people astray. And this is all, remember, in the context of the people of Israel coming, having already come back from the Babylonian captivity. They've already been sent to Babylon because of their faithlessness to God. The temple was destroyed. God brings them back to the land of Israel. They rebuild the temple. And within 100 years, Malachi is telling them, your priests have become corrupt. They're leading you astray. 
So this is the the theme in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And this is paralleled then with uh, chapter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, and on through chapter 3, verse 6, where we have a, a prophecy about one who will come to purify the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi, the priests, need to be purified because they themselves have become impure. They are the, the priests are the ones who are to represent the people, of, the people to God himself, but they have become impure, and so they need to be purified. And so there is one who is going to come. Uh, there's a reference in chapter 3, verse 1, to uh, God's messenger, uh, which, again, the book is from Malachi, my messenger. So there's another theme of God's messenger running through here. But God's messenger who's going to go before and prepare the way of the Lord, referring to John the Baptist, and then speaking of the messenger of the covenant who is Christ, the Messiah who's coming, and he will purge the sons of Levi. Moving then out from that section, you have uh, at the begin- towards the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 6 through 14, we have God accusing Israel of despising his name. God accuses Israel of despising his name. And in this section, we'll see that there is a a specific emphasis on worship and on the fact that uh, Israel has come before God and they've brought their sacrifices, but they've done so uh, without seeking to honor God. They have left out the honor of the Father in their worship. And it's evident in the way in which they worship. They bring uh, lame or sick sacrifices and lay them on the altar. And then they question God and ask, why are you not receiving our sacrifices? And God says, well, it's because you profane my altar. So chapter 1, 6 through 14 is this section of God accusing Israel of their um, uh, of despising God's name and of worship. And then towards the end of the book, the parallel section in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, we have God accusing, of, uh, accusing Israel of turning away from him and robbing him of the tithes and offerings. And so you have a parallel there about talking about the offerings and the way in which Israel has, has, um, has despised what God has said. The book uh, begins and ends in, the, in this structure of a chiasm with a defense of God's justice. And first, we see this in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, which we'll be looking at later. Uh, it's God's justice is defended, or there's an apology, an apologetic for God's justice by means of his love. God's justice is defended, in a sense, because of his love. And then at the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 3, we have uh, God, uh, a defense of God's justice through separating the righteous and the wicked. The book then concludes with an exhortation to remember the law of Moses. Look at this with me real briefly. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. So this is the last three verses of Malachi and also the last three verses of the Old Testament, the last three verses of prophetic revelation from God before a a time of 400 years of silence from God until uh, we have the time of the Messiah and, and beginning with John the Baptist. So look at this with me just briefly. God says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. And he spent much of the prophecy of Malachi talking to the people how they have not remembered the law of Moses. They have rejected God's ways. They've rejected um, and despised God's name by means of their false um, and profane worship. 
So at the end of all of this, he's reminding them, remember the law of Moses. And then he says, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The coming, of the, uh, the coming day of the Lord is when Christ comes, uh, as it's mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 as well. This day when Christ comes and he will purify the sons of Levi. He will purify the priesthood. And he does this, we know, um, because of the rest of scripture, we, he does this primarily through himself being that perfect sacrifice and being the perfect priest. But God says that he's going to send Elijah the prophet. And Jesus tells us, uh, in, in the Gospels, that this is a reference to John the Baptist. That John the Baptist is the one that God would send to prepare the way of the Lord and to uh, prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. What's really fascinating about this is then the end of this section in verse 6. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The Jews were to remember the law of Moses. They were to look forward to the coming or the return of a prophet, Elijah, who we know is John the Baptist. And the final word of the book of God's revelation in the Old Testament is curse. In Hebrew, the word is cherem. And cherem is a word describing God's holy war against wickedness. Um, in the Old Testament, when it talks about different cities that God told the Israelites to go and burn them completely. Don't leave any survivors. Don't even leave a cow. The, the, you need to completely wipe out these cities. That was described as um, this harem warfare. So God says, um, remember Moses. Uh, anticipate the coming of the prophet, lest I strike the earth with a curse. This here, I think, is a declaration of God coming in judgment. He is going to come and he is going to bring holy war. And so the question for God's people is, will they remember and understand the law and the prophets? Will they remember the one whom, and will they understand the one whom the law and the prophets point to? Jesus says, when Jesus is raised from the dead... He's, he's going on the road to Emmaus and he, and he comes across two disciples and he's walking with them. And, and the disciples say that he revealed to them through the scriptures all the law and the prophets and how they pointed to him. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is all about Christ. It's all about pointing to Christ and who he is. And what's, what's amazing and fascinating about this is this, these last couple of verses of Malachi, you have Moses, the law, and you have Elijah, the prophet, representing all of the prophets. And these are the two people that appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The law and the prophets are all pointing to Jesus and the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Holy One, who is going to purify the priests, who is going to reestablish the covenant with God. And so God leaves his people with this question. He leaves his people for 400 years of silence from God with this question. Will you remember? Will you study the scriptures? Will you know when he comes? Will you be ready for him? And then John the Baptist comes and he prepares the way and there's this great revival that happens. People uh, turning their hearts back to their father. And then Jesus comes. But the bulk of the Jews reject him. And what happens to the Jews because of this rejection? 
they're completely destroyed. The temple is annihilated. God brings his curse, the curse of the covenant upon them. Backing up again, zooming back out to uh, this overview of Malachi. Malachi uses a particular literary device through this book. And it's a device of this question and answer back and forth with, uh, between God and the people that he is bringing accusations against. Uh, many times the Lord declares something and then he puts his people's response. God sort of puts um, a question in the mouths of his people. And it's this questioning complaint. So let's look at this. The, the first example we have is in our uh, main text this morning. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, God, the Lord says, Yahweh says, I have loved you. He just makes this declaration. And the people say, or God says, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And we'll, we'll get into how this is a um, sort of a, a, um, a dishonoring question or a complaining question that the people give to God. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this kind of pattern goes back and forth. So God says, God says something, and then the people say, in what way have you done whatever? And then God responds with explaining and laying out his case then against the people. This happens um, six or seven uh, or maybe more times throughout the whole prophecy of Malachi. One of the things I think that this shows us, and, and I hope we'll see this as we work through the book over the coming months, one of the things that this shows us is the spiritual blindness that had descended upon Israel as they have again turned away from the Lord and his word. And again, remember, this is after God has he's, he's destroyed the temple, sent them into captivity, brought them back to the land. There's this great revival, and it's in the context of that revival, in Ezra and Nehemiah, that Malachi is writing. And he's telling the people, look, you are still not obeying the Lord. You're not giving yourself to him. You're not worshiping him rightly. There's this spiritual blindness that has descended upon Israel. So that, so that when God says something to Israel, his people, I have loved you, their answer is, in what way have you loved us? What do you mean, God? How have you loved us? This is, well, we'll get there. And so the book of Malachi is a fitting warning to God's people as he closes his revelation to them until the coming of the Messiah. But again, as, as we've seen, as I hope you've seen, um, as you read the scriptures and as you hear the word preached over and over again, with this warning, with these proclamations of judgment, also come reminders of the promises of the blessing that God has for those who follow him and keep his commandments. There are great covenant blessings for God's people when they follow him. And there are great covenant curses for the people of God when they turn from him. But let's look at some of these blessings just briefly. Chapter 1, verse 5. I'll just read through these. But I want you to hear that in the context of this book, this, this great rebuke that Malachi brings against God's people, hear these promises as well, or these reminders of God's promises. Chapter 1, verse 5. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 11. For my name shall be, um, shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 14. My name is to be feared among the nations. This is talking about God and his power, his name being declared among the nations, which in turn is a blessing to Israel. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, this is more particularly a blessing to God's own people. 
God says, to, um, he's, he said, you have robbed me of your tithes and offerings. And so God then issues a challenge to his people. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me or test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He will not destroy the, he will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's promise to his people that he's going to provide for them, not only provide for them, but he's going to pour out blessings upon them since, so, such that they can't even handle the weight of the blessings. And then again, chapter four, verse two. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. There's going to be great peace. There's going to be great healing for God's people that comes through the son of righteousness who's going to rise. And again, because we have the rest of scripture, we know who that son of righteousness is. He's the living Lord, Jesus Christ. And there's great healing for God's people in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our sin and temptations. There's great healing for God's people because of the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the book, an overview of the book of Malachi. There's uh, hopefully touched on some of the themes that come through and, and a little bit of the, um, the sense that this book leaves God's people with. There's this great anticipation of the coming of the Messiah and a, a, an exhortation to God's people that while they're waiting to remember God's law, to remember his word, to hold fast to his promises. And one of the things that we see through the book of Malachi is this, this need to follow God's commandments. That these blessings are, come from those who are in fellowship with God and who keep his commandments. Jesus told us what the first and greatest commandment was. The first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, was to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he says that. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, with everything that you have and with everything that you are. And one thing that scripture makes very clear is that since our first parents, since Adam and Eve, mankind is utterly incapable of keeping this command. The greatest commandment is to love God with every fiber of your being, with every penny in your bank account, with every item in your house, with all of your family, with all of your energy. The greatest commandment is to love God with all of it. And your experience teaches you and scripture teaches us that we are utterly incapable of actually keeping that commandment. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's command to them. Right? God gave them, God gave Adam and Eve how many negative commands? Just one. Right? He gave them one thing to not do. And all of us imitate our first parents in the way that we choose to do the one thing that we've been told not to do. We can't keep this commandment. And in so doing, they chose not to love God with their whole selves. They chose to devote themselves and to not devote themselves entirely to the one who gave them life, right? He had made them, he had created them, fashioned them, given them life and given them the world and said, don't eat of this one tree. And they could not keep that command. 
Jesus tells us, and, and scripture, all through Scripture, we see that obedience and love go hand in hand. Obedience and love go together. We always obey the one whom we love most. We always obey the one whom we love most. And that means that if we are not obeying God, we're obeying, if we're obeying something other than God, someone other than God, then we are loving that one more than God. And often that one is ourselves. We are obeying our own desires, our own fleshly wants, our own sinful hearts. And so that demonstrates who, whom we really love. We always obey the one we love most. And so given our sinful nature, we cannot love God. Left to ourselves. Left to yourself, you cannot love God. Left to yourself, you are utterly incapable of loving God. We cannot initiate love toward God. However, John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, we do love God if and only if he has first loved us. I am utterly incapable of loving God left to myself. And you know, that, you know this about yourself as well. Because you know that when those temptations come, you know how easy it is to give right back into them. To give into them. And in so doing, whom are you obeying? You're obeying yourself. Which demonstrates that left to yourself, you are unable to love God. You can't do it. You can't love God with everything you have and everything you are left to yourself. And this is why it is the only way in which we are able to love God is if he first loves us. The prophecy of Malachi begins with the Lord's declaration that he has loved Israel. And I find it fascinating that this is, this is the opening line of Malachi's prophecy. The opening line of this prophecy is not that God beginning to lay out his charges. First, he just begins with, I have loved you. That's all that he has to say, and then the case begins. Right? God, all God has to say is, I have loved you. And the, and the people already are objecting. I have loved you, says the Lord. Why is it that God chose Israel? Why is it that God interacts with Israel, has fellowship with Israel, uh, sets his temple in Israel so that a, a physical location in the physical world where God Almighty, the infinite God, can dwell? Why? Why? Why does he do this? Why does he speak with them? Why does he speak with their prophets and give them words to give directly to the people? What, why does he give them special attention? Why does he give them commands for how they ought to live? Why does he discipline them? Why does he bless them? Why does he guide them? Why does he continue to go after them and deliver them time and time and time again? Why does he give this special attention to Israel? It's because he has loved them. Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. God says, the, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you, 
with an everlasting love. And therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God has drawn, God drew Israel to himself because of his love for them. His everlasting love for those that he would save. I have loved you and therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness to myself. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is important to see. Deuteronomy is a book where God is establishing, reestablishing his covenant with Israel right before he sends them into the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'll start in verse 6. God says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Sorry, this, this is Moses speaking. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. God has chosen you, Israel. Um, and actually, um, interestingly, Peter, in 1 Peter, uses the same language to talk about the church. That you now are a chosen people, God's special nation that he has called out. But then Moses gives a um, sort of a clarification here. God has chosen you. He's called you out. He's set you up as his special treasure above all the other peoples. But verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you or chose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. God did not choose you, Israel, because you were great and mighty. Uh, we know from reading the Old Testament, God didn't choose Israel because they were uh, obedient. He didn't choose them because they were strong in their faith. Uh, when God sends Moses to go deliver the people of Israel, Moses thinks, how in the world are they going to believe me? How, how in the world are they going to they think that you are actually going to send somebody to deliver them? The implication being that most of the Jews in Egypt, at that time, or the Israelites in Egypt, had basically turned away from God. And we're no longer following him, but we're actually participating, likely, in the religion of Egypt. So God didn't choose Israel because of their faithfulness. He didn't choose them because they were a, a mighty nation. Well, so why did he choose them? Well, verse 8 tells us. The Lord chose you because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers... The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the land or from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God has loved Israel and, and because of that, he has delivered them. He's demonstrated his love to them in delivering them. And why does he love Israel? Because he loved Israel. Why does he love Israel? Why does God love Israel so much because he loves Israel. Why does he love Israel? Because of his love. That's the only reason. There is no other reason. There's no other reason that God pours out his love upon a people or upon an individual except for his love. That is the only basis upon which God loves anyone. In Hosea chapter 11, the Lord says that he loved 
Israel. And because of this, he had called them his firstborn son. And because of this, he had brought them out of the land of Egypt. God delivered his people from Egypt and called them his firstborn son, not because they deserved it or had earned it in any way, but because he loved them. When we reflect on all of the stories in the Old Testament of God's provision for Israel, um, delivering them out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness, providing for them in the wilderness time and time again, delivering them from the hand of their enemies. Then they turn away and, and run away from God and despise him and worship idols. And he'd send a judge to come and bring them back and restore worship and restore fellowship with them and bless the land. And then they do it again. And God does this over and over and over again. And when we reflect on all of this, his great long suffering with his people, I think we can understand the ridiculousness the ridiculous nature and the complaining nature of Israel's response to this declaration from God in Malachi. God says, I have loved you. And the only reason I have loved you is because I loved you. And Israel's response is, yeah, but how have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? Say the people that have just been delivered from the captivity in Babylon and the temple's been rebuilt. And God has reestablished his covenant with them again. How have you loved us? God called Abraham out from among the pagan nations and promised to bless him and to bring blessing to the world through his descendants. Genesis chapter 12. God brings Abraham out of Egypt, or sorry, out of the land of Ur, out from among the, the nations. And there's no reason given for why God chooses Abraham. There's a genealogy. We know who Abraham comes from. But there's nothing about Abraham himself that identifies him as the right guy for God to choose. God just calls him. God continued this covenant with Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. But from before they were even born, God made it clear that he had chosen Jacob over Esau. And this is particularly strange because Esau was the firstborn. And the firstborn normally would get the greater blessing from the father. But God had expressed to Jacob and, and to Rebekah that no, I'm sorry, to Rachel, that no, this needs to, the, the blessing goes to Jacob. The blessing goes to Jacob, not to the firstborn son. And this is God's answer to Israel's question. God says, I have loved you. Israel responds, yeah, but how have you loved us? And God's answer is not, well, look at all these things that I have done for you over the years. God's answer is not, well, look how many times I have delivered you. Look how I established you in the land. Look how I blessed you with the land until you turned away from me. But then I went after you and brought you back. Now, that's not his answer. When, when Israel says, how have you loved us? God's answer is, Jacob I have loved. Remember that um, Jacob's name is also turned to Israel. Jacob is representative of Israel. In what way have you loved us? God says, this is in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? 
What's the difference between Esau and Jacob? God had promised Abraham that he would bless the nations through his family. Are not both Esau and Jacob from Abraham? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob's descendants say to God, in what way have you loved us? And God's answer is, because I chose you. Because who did God need to choose? Whom did God need to choose to enter into fellowship with, to have covenant with, to bless? No one. No one. Because we are all descended from our first parents, from Adam and Eve, and because, and because of that descent from Adam and Eve, none of us can love God. And because none of us can love God, all of us have broken his commandments. And because of that, all of us deserve only his eternal wrath. What difference is there between Esau and Jacob? The only difference is God's love. The only difference is God's love. Israel and Edom had been at odds since Israel settled in the land of Canaan. Edom, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And so when Israel comes back from Egypt and they enter into the land of Canaan and establish themselves as a nation, throughout their history, there's these back and forths between Israel and Edom over and over and over again. These brothers were always at odds. When the Babylonians come and they destroy Jerusalem, they tear down the temple, we find out from other prophets in Scripture that Edom, the Edomites, joined in with the Babylonians in plundering the temple. And because of this, they fall under God's heavy judgment. Um, there's a reference to this in, as we're looking at here. In chapter 1, verse 3, Esau I have hated, I have laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. God brings great judgment upon Edom, actually through the Babylonians as well. And, but the reason that he brings judgment upon the Edomites is because of the way that they treated Israel. Um, if you want to look at references to this more specifically, you can look at Joel chapter 3, verse 19, um, the whole chapter of Ezekiel 35, or the whole book of um, Obadiah. Obadiah is this uh, prophecy of judgment upon Edom because of the way that they have treated God's people. But Edom's response to this, so God comes and he, he destroys Edom, but there's still some Edomites left, and they say that they're going to try to rebuild. We see this in verse 4. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. We're going to rebuild. God wiped us out, but we're going to rebuild. And you can imagine the Edomites thinking this, particularly as the Israelites have come back from Babylon. And what have the Israelites done? They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the, the city of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the walls. Well, Edom, the Edomites say, well, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to rebuild. God's says of them that they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. They have no part in God's people. Uh, Psalm 127 tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. God had brought his people back and had told them to rebuild the temple. He rebuilt the temple. And the Edomites, seeking to rebuild their power, were thrown down. 
God did not allow them to rebuild. When God's love, in verse 5 then, when God's love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau are demonstrated in this, God says that his name will be magnified beyond Israel. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. God says that because of that, that this, this truth is going to magnify his name beyond Israel. This means that God's election, God's sovereign elective grace is an evangelizing truth. That God's sovereignty and his sovereign election is the foundation of the gospel. If it's not for God's sovereign grace and his, and, and his unmerited favor toward us, there is no gospel. The only reason that you can say that your sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ is because of the love of God. The love of God which you deserve not at all. God's, God's sovereign election, his sovereign grace is the foundation of the gospel. Paul quotes from Malachi in his defense of God's electing love. Look at this in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Paul here is uh, answering questions about uh, to Christians. If God has given these promises to Israel, they're his chosen people, and yet Israel has been rejected because they've rejected the Messiah, how can I trust God's promises to me? It, it, it seems as though God didn't keep his word to Israel, right? God said he's going to love Israel with an everlasting love, and how can I trust then that God, if he says that of me, that he's going to love me? That he's going to see me through to the end? This is the context, the questions that Paul is seeking to answer here. And Paul's answer, in part, is to appeal to what the Lord says in Malachi. Look at, starting in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. This is the word of the promise. So he gives this promise to Abraham. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So God promised to Abraham that he would have a son and that through him would come blessing to the nations. Okay, so God gives his promise to Abraham. He has this son Isaac. But not only this, when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of the God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. When Rebekah conceived and she realized that she had twins in her womb, God tells Rebekah and Isaac that the older shall serve the younger. He chooses Jacob over Esau. He favors Jacob. And then Paul quotes from Malachi, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. 
when God gives his promises, what is the basis of those promises? The basis of those promises is his love, his sovereignty. Well, how do we know that? We know that because what had Jacob done to earn God's favor? Paul makes it very clear, absolutely nothing. Because Jacob wasn't even born yet. Jacob had not been born, and yet God chose him. Well, what had Esau done to deserve God's wrath? Apart from being born a human, nothing. But because he was a son of Adam, he deserves the wrath of God. He is hated before he is even born. Because he is a son of Adam. Because he's part of a fallen race. A race that, because of our father Adam, hates God. And a race that willfully hates God. Both Jacob and Esau, apart from God's sovereign election, did deserve his eternal wrath. And yet God chose Jacob. God's love in choosing those that he will save does not depend at all. It does not depend at all. Not even a little bit on the object of that love. Um, yeah, but... I want to be able to say that I put my faith in God. That I believed in him and that's why I'm saved. It, the problem is though, if, if God left us just one thing to do in order to obtain our salvation, what would humankind do? Well, let's look back at the garden. Adam and Eve had one thing to do, to remain in fellowship with God. And it was the one thing they could not do, which was to obey him and to love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They loved themselves, they obeyed themselves, and thus plunged our race into sin. We're the same way. If God left up to us just one little thing for us to do, just one little part of our salvation, we would screw it up. There's no way that we would do it all the way faithfully. God's love, your salvation, cannot be dependent at all upon the object of his love. It cannot be dependent at all upon you. And this is true in the same way that his creation, God's creative acts, cannot be dependent upon the creation. If God's going to make the world, he can't depend on the world doing anything to bring about itself. He can't depend upon the world in that creative act. He is the one doing it. We find this, we tend to find this offensive, and we say that this doctrine of God's sovereign election makes God capricious or arbitrary. And here's what we need to notice, though God states this, this gospel truth, this truth of His. His unconditional love. His unconditional love. Unconditional meaning it's not conditioned upon you at all. His unconditional love for you. He defends this love by saying, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. God uses this doctrine that we tend to find so offensive. And he uses this doctrine to defend his love. Do you serve a loving God? 
can you answer like God does? God's answer is, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Do you serve a loving God? Can, can you answer that way? We find that offensive. But, it, but why do we find it offensive? We find it offensive, and in doing so, it shows our pride. If the doctrine of God's unconditional love, if the doctrine of God's sovereign grace is offensive, at root, it's because we want God to choose us for some good, some merit, just a little bit of our own doing. And that's pride. We want some little piece of that. And here's the irony. We want some little piece of that because we want some little piece of the glory. But if that's what we're clinging to, we're missing all of the glory that's poured out because of his sovereign grace, because of his unconditional love. God chose Abraham out from the nations for no merit. God chose Jacob before he was even born. God loved Israel. Why? Because of his love. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only because, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that the only reason that you believe is because God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, even when you were a dead, stinking corpse in your sin, unable to please God, unable to do anything to merit his favor, even then, God made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And it is grace alone. Like Israel, all of our sin as Christians stems at some level, in some way, from a neglect of this gospel truth. As Christians, so, so um, in one sense, we've been talking mostly about how does somebody go from death to life? How does somebody go from being a non-Christian to a Christian? And it's God's sovereign grace, his election, his, his electing love. But, but now as Christians, now as believers... You no longer carry the guilt and the weight and the wrath of God for your sin because it was all paid for. And so where does your sin come from? At root, your sin comes from a neglect of this truth. Your sin, that, that sin that so easily ensnares you, that sin that you cannot shake, that sin that you, that you keep going back to, That sin, that disobedience of God, that thing which displeases God that you can't stop doing, where does that come from? It comes because you don't believe God's love. You don't believe that God loves you unconditionally. You think that you need to merit God's favor in some small way. This, this was Adam and Eve's problem in the garden God gave them everything and he withheld one thing from them and some would argue that's just for a time even and they didn't believe that God was good enough 
They didn't believe that God loved them enough. And so Eve was deceived and Adam jumped right in with her. Because they didn't believe the goodness of God. They did not believe the unconditional love of God. When we forget God's saving love, his electing grace, we think that we are entitled to something and therefore pride sets in and we soon turn from obeying God. Now, in some ways, this, this happens instantaneously. It's not as though there's a long, necessarily a long stretch between your disobeying God by the way that you spoke to your, the, the way that you lashed out to your wife or your kids, the, the way that you lied to your parents. It's not as though there's this long progression of, I'm not understanding the love of God, and then there's pride, and then I'm going to disobey God. No, sometimes it happens all together, all at once. But what's the root of all of that? The root is not believing God. Not believing what he says. But if we love God, if we humbly acknowledge that we do not deserve his love in any respect, Jesus says that we keep his commandments. We can't love God unless he loved us. And so we follow God because we love him and we love him because he first loved us. And it is his love alone that sets us apart. Uh, this sermon in many ways is um, high-flying, overview, big picture, maybe not a lot of practical implication. And that's the point. Do you believe that you've been saved by grace? Do you believe that you are saved because of God's love for you. And, and if you believe that, and if you rest on that, by that grace, everything else follows. Everything else falls into place. And, and it'll take us the rest of our lives for those things to fall into place. But it all comes from this foundational truth, this foundation of the gospel, that God loves because of his love. And there is nothing else. By grace, you've been saved. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which says these hard things. That you've loved Jacob and you've hated Esau and that that's the reason that you love your people. This is hard for us to accept. It's hard for us to live out, to live like we believe this to live like we believe that we are not deserving of your grace, to live humbly before you. So, Father, we ask for more grace. We ask for grace to believe this in a saving way as we place our faith in Christ, and we ask that we would believe this in a living way that, that goes with us in all the works that you've set before us to do. And Father, we know that we can only ask this because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, because he sits at the right hand with you and intercedes for us. So because of all of that, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Would you stand and would you